Welcome to Workle's Happiness Podcast, the podcast which delves into people's working lives and finds out how happy people really are at work. This episode looks back at 2021 and the inspiring guests who have sat down and spoken about their careers to Workle's founder, Mark Price. We kick off with Charlene Premper, founder of A Vibe Called Tech. She describes her aspirations growing up. When you come from a background where you're not necessarily exposed to lots of different careers, I didn't know that because I was interested in stories that the path to being able to tell those stories was by being like a journalist or an author. I didn't know that that was a space that I could occupy. So I, di- I didn't really sit around thinking, oh, I'm going to be this or I'm going to be that. The truth is, I think, because well, my mum didn't have very much money. And I think the truth is, at that point, you're just thinking about, honestly, like how you're just going to survive and how you're going to get out of that space that you're in um, what, versus it being kind of a career-specific target, if that makes sense. Um, so I knew I wanted to just do well at school and that I wanted to be like a professional but I didn't really know what all of the options were in terms of like professional life. And, and did you work when you were at school? Did you have a part-time job? Absolutely. So I actually lied about my age when I was um, 15. Um, and I worked at sports division on Oxford Street, um, where I was like a top a top earner for getting people to sign up to sports division's um, store cards. And so like I worked there um, and then I worked at Foot Locker and then I worked at Marks and Spencer's throughout my, basically my entire, um, as soon as I was old enough to have a job, I had one. Um, and mo- mostly in retail, um, even through uni, when I was at university, um, like in the summers I'd work at um, Selfridges until my last year when I did like a more like career-based internship. Um, but yeah, I-, I worked the entire time and I really, I really, really loved it. Um, you kind of met people who were in a similar position to you who were studying and working at the same time, but also just understanding how businesses operated and the very, like, they were targets that you had to be. Learning how to sell things into people, even though it was only trainers, and, like, it was, yeah, trying to sell, sell people, like, a particular pair, it was still... It was still an exercise in marketing, like what you say about the trainer, um, how you make it seem attractive. And working in a team. It's like I learned to work in a team from a very young age um, and how to be a useful cog um, in that wheel. And so, um, yeah, it was, it was a good time. When um, BLM happened, it was just a kind of a moment of reassessment. And I was thinking in terms of like the relationships I have, as well as the skills that I have, um, like how can I do work um, that will make a difference and so I continue and continue to do loads of work in the kind of technology space and how that affects black community but also like there is a real need for there to be more work done on how brands communicate with and about black people um, and everyone was kind of like running to focus on visibility so just making sure there was more black people in their campaigns Um, more black people behind the scenes but um, less of a focus on what the actual stories were they were telling Um, and what a vibe called tech is about is making the black story and the black narrative very much part of the mainstream discussion and so Um, 
And so it's, tell us about the process of setting up. So, I mean, did you have a Damascus moment or was this something that, you know, you were thinking about year after year and then in the end you just thought, I've got to do this? Or was there an event that made you say, I've got to set up an agency to, to work on this? No, so Lewis and I, who's um, the creative director of Bible Tech, we were talk we've been talking about this in some capacity. We met at Freeze, um, that's the summer place I've worked. So we met at Freeze and we were we were talking about this in for like years. And then when when all the kind of things happened in summer, um, we've been really fortunate to have worked with Gucci um, when we were at Freeze. And they do amazing work already. Um, we've kind of like Gucci change makers. Um, so they already kind of demonstrated that they're committed to it um, before BLM happened. And so when we when it all happened, we we're like, who? I think we need to get this going. Who should we kind of kick this off with? Um, and then we were like, it would be amazing if we could do like start this off with Gucci. Um, and they were really keen on the kind of idea and the concept. And then we started working with them. So that was like our first our first client as an agency, which is insane. Um, is it hard to set up an agency? Um, it's not easy. <laughs> In the there are, there are two sides to it, right? There is um, the just the logistics of setting up a business. So um, like registering the business, um, making sure all of your accounts are in order, um, working out the team that you need around you, um, all of the kind of what the processes need to be, um, the branding, all of that kind of making sure your website's up and running, where you're going to operate out of, all of like that side of things. Um, and that in itself is usually someone's full-time job. But when it's um, when you're starting up, a, when you're starting a startup effectively, you do everything. So like having to do all of that work. Um, and then in parallel to that, as an agency, it's about working out who are the clients, doing all of the reaching out to them, having all of those conversations, and then delivering the actual work that you've agreed upon. Um, so like coming up with all of those ideas, working with all of the partners. Um, so it's the multifaceted nature of um, being a founder of a company is is exciting, but it's, yeah, it's really, really hard work up until up until January, I've been working a seven day week for like eight or nine months. We hear now from Fiona Grayson, founder of She Can, She Did, the first UK benefits programme for female business owners. She talks about her struggles to create her startup. The first year, it was literally just traveling around. I had a really rusty old Corsa, traveled around the country, uh, went for coffees, put my phone on record in the middle of um, the table and just would chat. I would then type them up um, and transcribe it, which normally took about seven, eight hours, and then just share. I shared two interviews a week, but that was seven days of literally just chat, travel, type, post and on that for about four or five months um and obviously no money and um, my savings were literally just kind of depleting very quickly um and then I remember thinking like right I really need to um get some money coming in I'll throw up I'll put on a conference like the ones I used to do and I remember just being like I'll get loads of sponsors in the same way that we used to do for FX Week and 
um, put together this big, amazing conference agenda, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember reaching out to like the likes of HSBC and some software firms. And I remember going and getting a train up to Birmingham and literally remembering like I remember thinking oh my god it's going to cost loads that that train ticket um and going up and I was like no it's HSBC if I get in front of them that I'm sure they'll say yes if if like they they get the idea etc cetera, etc cetera. and I remember pitching this uh she can she did lifestyle event to HSBC and the lady was so lovely but she just said you know how many people have come to previous events and I said uh oh none this would be the first and she said um but like with all due respect fee like you have to prove that you can get one bum on the seat before we even consider sponsoring this and I remember just getting the train back from Birmingham being so just like oh my god this is going to be so much harder than I thought it would be because it's so much easier when you've got a respected brand behind you and you're working for someone else and like that gave me the kind of kick up the bum I needed to very much like think smaller um but I decided I was always adamant even if I did an event on a smaller scale it had to be different and that's where the midweek mingles came in um so from the challenges that because the focus on these interviews were the challenges women really like and they really did they opened up to me so much about everything they were experiencing and then the research as well was saying that you know the lack of down-to-earth networking opportunities all of that so that's where the midweek mingles came in and um, the first one sold out in 48 hours. And I think that was more the power of just um, the community that was growing on tiny community, um, but on Instagram um, and just kind of giving me a chance. And then after three events in London, um, that's when I got my first sponsor on board, which was Zero, the accounting software app. Um, and I'm convinced that they only sponsored because uh, they're based in Milton Keynes and I said that I was so I went and I met them for coffee um, but I they they were the first and, and that meant that there was a bit more money coming in as opposed to tickets um, but then long story short obviously last year's where it all kind of changed a bit but about 10 months into She Can She Did because of those recurring challenges cropping up um, that's where the idea for the benefits program that we launched last year popped into my head um, and it was very much, you know, until you're financially secure, there is no, there are no uh, consistent benefits, rewards, et cetera, et cetera, for being your own boss. Um, the amount of resilience that you have to put in, um, how many different challenges you have to go through behind the scenes. Like it's such tough work and, you know, you don't just walk away from your salary, you walk away from your pension, you walk away from your healthcare, you walk away from your gym memberships, all of that at a time where you are putting your pride on the line and all I, like all I say, all eyes are watching, um, but you know, people kind of take an interest and it is, you know, it's, it's just tough work basically. Workle's founder, Mark Price, sat down earlier this year with British journalist and best-selling author, Helen Russell, whose book, The Year of Living Danishly, gave her an insight into a different way of life. And, and what about work? Are people happier at work in Denmark? They are infuriatingly near giddy at work in Denmark yes they have um I wrote about this in um in my last book The Atlas of Happiness that the Danes have a word Arbeidsglob 
from Arbeiter, the Danish for work, and Glul, the word for happiness, that literally means happiness at work, because it's something that is uh, essential for living the good life in Denmark. So Danes will expect this Arbeidsglul at work, and if they're not experiencing it, they will either change jobs or they will um, they will t- make a change. They will take time off, and actually antidepressant use and stress leave is is still relatively high in Denmark but it's thought that this is because of this Arbeitsglul there is an expectation that you'll be happy at work so if you're not you do something about it you go to the doctors you get help you take time off and there's no stigma attached to that here so yeah it's incredibly important to Danes to be happy at work and so as a result studies suggest that more of them are I think this is the happiest workforce in the world and and I spent three decades of my working life working for the John Lewis Partnership. And the supreme purpose of the John Lewis Partnership is the happiness of the people that work there. So the company only exists for the happiness of the people that work in the organization. And what I'm really curious to know is in Denmark, how do they define that? What does it mean to be happy at work? Is it about beanbags and pizza evenings or, or is it something more structural about the way they work? Yeah, that's, it's, um, I think it's something about autonomy, actually. Um, So maybe perhaps similar in the, in the John Lewis partnership in the way that everybody feels as though they are invested in the eventual outcome, there's a real love of consensus, so that everyone gets a say, but how and where, and when you do the work that is allotted to you is up to you. And there, there isn't so much perhaps micromanagement. So, um, yeah, as long as you get the work done, you could be working from home before we all had to be working from home. Um, and there is more of a sense that you are trusted to do a good job and then leave. So there's not the same presenteeism that you might find elsewhere. It's um, There was a, a story when I first arrived here that someone, an, an international working till about seven in the evening, rather than getting a pat on the back, as you might be used to in, say, a capital city in many places around the world, actually got a lecture on time management and a leaflet about efficiency, because there's assumption that, well, if you can't get your work done in the allotted time, then perhaps you're doing something wrong rather than it being a bonus. So, yeah, I think it's 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 autonomy, really. Noella Casares Masanka spoke to Mark earlier this year about finding Malaika, a foundation which helps young people and adults with training in literacy, farming skills and entrepreneurship in her home country, the Democratic Republic of Congo. Our school is really a leadership school, full of innovation. We have a staff that is really rigorous, that really adapt themselves. We invest a lot in our curriculum, in the training of our teachers, in technology, that's uh, very, very important. And we hope that Malaika, it will be only one Malaika, but we hope that our model will be duplicated in, uh, in different parts of the world. And, and your mum must be incredibly proud of what you've achieved there, Noella. And you know, she's, she's um, my mum went through so many tough times in her life, but she, when I'm go there, she come with me at the school and in Kalibuka and yeah, she's extremely, she's extremely proud because um, I could stay in London or I could stay in New York, but I decided to, to give back. It's not easy to run a foundation. It's not easy to fundraise. It's a lot of challenges to work in Congo and in Africa. I have challenge every day. 
and um, you need really, really solid nerve and you need to stick to your vision, to your mission, to really work as a team. And me being the leader, I, I have to cheer up everyone. You know, I, I, I cannot show, yes, I have a lot of tough times, a lot of side times. When the pandemic arrived and we have 40% of donation went down, I was panicking. How are we gonna keep paying our staff? How are we gonna keep running all the programs? Because it costs $400,000 a year to run everything that we have on the ground. I have nights I didn't sleep, but I wanted to make sure that first we will pay all the staff that they still be able to look after their families. And so only because the, the school and the program were closed, we wanted to make sure that we can still deliver, we can deliver, because the food went completely high level price. Uh, the, the, the parents were not able to feed the kids anymore. So when the village went through a tough times, even to get food. So we make sure that every Tuesday and Thursday, we went at some point in villages and via our school, we distributed school uh, um, food and we reached over 7,000 uh, members. So that was a very, a very special moment. And people ask me often, what is the success of Malaika? I will say it's really because we're working very closely with the community. We're working at a grassroots level and the community are the one taking part of everything we're doing. And they are the one protecting Malaika. We are there for them, offering them all the classes at the community center. We are there when there are any problems, we lobby to the government to make the road. 70% of the road has been made. Now I'm lobbying uh, um, really to push hard to get electricity. And already it's kind of um, bringing um, uh, an economical empowerment in a village because they are able to go from the village to go in town to sell their goods. Now you can hear Rebecca Brown, founder of M-Powder, reflect on her career move and the personal journey she went on to create a nutrient-rich powder supplement formulated to give nutritional support for the perimenopause. I just felt like I said yes to stuff. I didn't really ever have a sort of very clear plan as to what I was going to do. Um, but looking back, I think perhaps the, the important elements um, that have informed M-Powder have been the desire to listen. You know, so that's what is instilled in us as, as researchers, but I think also as a good manager and as a good um, company owner, that ability to actually listen without prejudice and genuinely hear what's being said uh, is what drives culture and what drives good, good business. Um, and so it was very natural for me when I, when I started my own perimenopause transition, when I realised how little was, was out there for women, the first thing I wanted to do was to talk to more women to understand you know whether whether my experience was unusual and I, and I guess from that a very natural organic uh, community grew and then from that a very natural organic brand evolved to to, to what we, we we launched this year. Looking back in terms of setting up your current business and what you're doing is there anything you would have liked to have done in the past that you think might have even better equipped you? I think um, one of the things that I would have liked to have, have um, experienced is um, probably more sort of clinical research experience, which is quite a different discipline. You know, I, I segued swiftly from, from sort of data analysis into creative planning, which I loved. 
But I think looking now at the way that we're building out our product offering, for example, and the, and the desire to ensure that there's a robust clinical basis to, to the recipes that we develop, learning about how that works. I have a, I have a very basic understanding of it because I've often been aligned to those um, type of researchers and, and, and those kind of practices, but I never really got the opportunity to go in and get under the bonnet. You know, it was, it was stuff that was reported to me. And I think uh, just because of the nature of what we're doing now, that kind of experience would have been incredibly useful to me. Okay, so let's talk about M-Powder. So uh, you gave up your, your um, previous job a year ago. Um, uh, you started to do lots of research um, and you launched your product in September. And it's obviously based on a personal journey for you. Uh, started with the perimenopause. Um, we had uh, Liz Earle on one of our early podcasts and she yeah. talked a lot about uh, the perimenopause and the menopause. In fact, I went with my wife to listen to her talk in um, Shaftesbury and um, I think she had about 150 women in the audience and I was the only man. So <laughs> I've, I've kind of, I, I, I've, I've sort of got a, a degree of understanding, but I think what would be really helpful for our listeners is for you just to talk through your story which is an amazing story and how it's brought you to now bring this product to market for the benefit of all women so how how did it start well it's it, it it started as it does for you know the vast majority of women in the western world in that i was i was running an agency i was loving being my my planning person my planning head on um and um i started to feel unwell uh, and, and the way that it manifested itself, which worried me most, based on all of you, all of our discussions we've had so far in terms of obsessive uh, um, characteristics and also that kind of benchmark and competitiveness I tend to have with myself, I, I began to notice I just, I just wasn't able to do my job in the way that I'd done it um, all my career. I felt, I felt uh, less confident going into meetings. I felt really nervous about presenting research findings, um, all of the things I kind of loved and felt quite comfortable doing because I'd done them for so long, I, I lost my, my confidence for. And um, that, you know, so that sort of emotional um, self-doubt and anxiety really, really started to stop me being able to perform my job. And I was running a small business and, and it was really noticeable to me. And the way that I managed it was just by working harder and harder. So again, going back to our conversation about uh, what I learned from my first job. I think that that work ethic and that sort of um, belief that you just have to push on through in order to deliver didn't serve me well at that particular moment in life. So, you know, I probably um, overworked um, in the early stages. I didn't realise that what I was experiencing was a perimenopause because so much of it felt psychological. I was aware that my skin was changing. I was kind of putting on weight. I was, I was feeling kind of just gen, generally uncomfortable, but I, I had no idea that there was this biochemical stage that we go through before menopause and that it, it tends to happen at about 43, 44. I kind of, in my head, menopause was in your fifties and it was hot flashes and it, all of the sort of media narratives that we're fed. Um, I ended up going to the doctors, um, which is very rare for me. Um, but, and I felt like a Ford going in because it, you know, really the conversation I had was I, I just don't, feel like me anymore I've lost my confidence I'm tired all the time you know I'm covered in teenage acne which was really unfair because I did have it as a teenager as well um, and my doctor was was as ill-informed as I was and that again isn't unusual sadly um, so his diagnosis which I can understand if you if you look at how I arrived 
um, in his surgery was that I was burnt out and that actually what I needed was some time away from the business to get well again. Um, and I probably would have sort of taken his advice and just gone and picked up some supplements. But what I knew inside myself was I wasn't depressed. And, and that's kind of what he was he sort of implying when he, he sort of gave me his diagnosis. He was kind of like, you know, go away, take some time out. And if you're still struggling, come back and we can look at some, some, some antidepressants uh, to support you. And I kind of knew that what I was struggling with wasn't depression. Um, and so I did go to the uh, health food store and uh, I wandered down the aisles. I did a little bit of wiki Googling, uh, obviously with my research head on. And I, I discovered this thing called the perimenopause, which I hadn't even really heard about. Um, and with armed with that, I thought, well, I'll, I'll buy some vitamins and some supplements and I'll, I'll start looking into how I can make myself feel well. And again, I guess with my researcher head on, what struck me when I went to purchase my, my supplements was just the sheer horror of being in what was effectively an end of life aisle, uh, rather than a midlife aisle, where all of the, sort of the imagery, all of the stuff, you know, that closer I guess I'd spent my life fine tuning to affect the that, you know, the audience that the product was designed to um, engage with fell off, you know, so if you look at a menopause supplement brand, they tend to be, you know, to feature women with dentures, you know, in cornfields, uh, in, in comfy shoes. Uh, and that wasn't me or any of my peer group. And I couldn't understand why I'd read about this thing called the perimenopause, and yet there were no perimenopause products. There was just a menopause tablet I could take. And it felt like this whole sector had had basically been left in the 1980s when we all took multivitamins without really understanding what we needed uh, nutritionally. And my curiosity kicked in. I, I couldn't work out why there wasn't more innovation and why there weren't more options available to women at this stage of life. Um, and that's really how Empowder began, almost by accident. So I started looking into what I needed to put on my plate to start feeling better from a sort of nutritional point of view. I started reading up about the, sort of the biochemical changes that the body goes through and the fact that there are three distinct ones and that really you shouldn't be looking at perimenopause as a menopause stage because what you need nutritionally at that point is quite different to what you need at menopause and, and obviously postmenopause, again, a very, very different um, biochemical uh, life stage that every woman goes through. So as I started looking into all of that research and I guess getting well, because I did start to feel better um, over time, I started to realise that there was a real need for a more intelligent approach to this life stage. Moran Ghosh, host of the Self-Centred podcast, talks about how his side hustles helped launch his career presenting and working for the BBC and ITN. On the side, I'd been doing other stuff, so I knew I wasn't up for finance. I knew I quite liked writing and being creative. So I'd been doing this thing, which I'd just fallen into. I'd met someone at a BBC event and we were doing this thing called the BBC Black and Asian Forum. And it was basically, we'd go out and just review gigs and, you know, cultural stuff that was, you know, British, Asian or, or black. So when I applied to the attachment team, I had all this on, and it was the early days of online. In fact, online in those days was called BBC I. It wasn't the BBC, it was seen as this separate thing. Now, of course, it's just, it's just the world. But I'd done this stuff on the side. And so maybe the biggest lesson is that even if you're not doing the thing that's bang on what you want to do day to day, these, these side hustles can really pay off. And for me, it really did. And so I applied to the attachment scheme with all this, these articles I'd written, with my work I'd done in my own time, to apply to an Asian, you know, the BBC Asian network. And they, they granted that. And what it meant was I could go to an actual radio station and do these write-ups and do this kind of stuff as my job. 
and from there I was just you know because I've got this kind of can-do approach I think I was just able to again keep pushing keep doing the stuff I really loved keep meeting people and that kind of took me ultimately into journalism and then presenting before I went to ITN and, and then tell us about the move to ITN so obviously things are going great at the BBC you're learning loads you keep developing so why did you decide to leave for their competitor it's a great question and sometimes sometimes I have looked back at that decision thinking hmm was that the right decision because at the BBC I was doing a show called kicking off on a Saturday afternoon which was a live football show and I had been doing it with Nihal who's now stayed at the BBC he's at Five Live and then I got to present it on my own and, and it was great and then I also was doing local sports reporting t- on TV and I, they were trying to train me to be you know a, a TV reporter but then I think I don't know how I heard of it but I heard that ITM were launching this whole football channel and remember I'm in my early 30s or late 20s here they're launching their their own football channel with Satanta who in those days had bought the Premier League rights or at least some of them and they were launching a brand new channel with frontline anchors so you're not just a reporter you're an actual anchor of 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 live television and I just heard about it and I think I can't remember someone just said just gave me their email somehow I dropped them an email they dropped me an email and I went to see them on Gray's Inn Road and it was just so exciting because it was it was kind of at the time I was living up in Birmingham and it was back to London and it was this whole new channel, lots of young people. They were the new kids on the block with the Premier League. I did a screen test and, they, and I did a test about sport as well, which is quite funny. But I ultimately got, they offered me the gig as a frontline presenter on a new channel at ITN and I just thought this is a pretty cool opportunity everyone's new we're doing this launching this whole thing together it's 24 hour there's loads of content so I left now the the reason I sometimes I say I I look back and think was it the right decision it it was the right decision because of what's come after but the channel I was on that ITN were co-owners of was was Satanta Sports News and that went bust within two years because Satanta in the UK stopped trading so I then ended up with no broadcast career because I'd left the BBC, I'd given up a staff job and I could have tried to get back in absolutely, but I just felt that that, because ITN's a commercial company as well, I felt that that impetus, that entrepreneurial spirit, I, I wanted to see what, I wanted to let that free a bit. So it was the right decision, but there's been times as an entrepreneur where I've had no security. There's been times when you've been, you know, chasing the POs and and I've sometimes thought, wouldn't it be lovely to have that comfort blanket? But it wouldn't. Sam Jameson, founder of Soapsmith, the luxury soap brand, explains to Mark about how she got her products into Harrods. I started making my soap. I was, I did things a bit crazy. I started making my soap in my flat. And I just made little batches, little batches of soap, just refining them, going through so many different um, options. I had like 23 different types of shea butter soap, you know, and I would look at that. The second thing, I, but you've got to bear in mind, I was securing my formulation, I was securing what I was going to do. So I had to think of what point of difference, why would somebody buy my soap and not buy somebody else's soap? 
for other people at home who want to do this, mm. I'll be thinking, gosh, two years. When did you sell your first product? You don't, 2012. You don't need to, listen, newsflash, you don't need to spend two years doing this. You could do it all in six months. You could do it all in six months. I was just dumb and extra, but you don't really need to be. You really don't. You could do and it then, in six months. And then you've got this product, you've got the mm -hmm. scent right, you've got yep. the font right, you've got your mm -hmm. packaging right. Yep. You've done all of that from your kitchen. Yeah. And, and then you've gone and sold it into Harrods. No, 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 no. What I did was, I was like, oh, again, I don't know. But I presumed um, retailers would not want to buy stock from somebody who's selling it in their flat. Right. That's just I just I just thought, obviously, these times have changed. And yes, they do. But I thought I'll get a, I'll get a um, premises. So July 20, July 2011, I moved into a former watch factory and I set up everything. So I spent six months preparing for, you know, getting into Harrods, getting in a retailer. That and did a, you recruit people then, Sam? No, nope, it was just me. It was literally me making everything from top to bottom, just everything me. Okay, you know? so you've got your premises. There's mm -hmm. you working 24 hours a day. Not quite, but close. <laughs> <laughs> so just, just, just tell us. I mean, people out there are going to be kind of, their minds are going to be blown by this. You've done all of this. You've not got a customer. And then the first customer yeah. you've got is Harrods. How, yeah. how did you do that? It was just crazy because when when you're making soaps i'd spent so long designing the fragrances you have to get hold of a perfumer to help you develop the fragrances and the scents right and then you have to get hold of packaging you have to almost because what i decided I, I wasn't going to go with a smaller company i want to go to the best of the best i went to the best packages i went to the best perfumers and i was the smallest client they'd ever taken and I told them my idea and I sold them on what I wanted to achieve. And they bought into that and they supported me. So instead of having the 10,000 minimums that they offered, I got 500 minimums. Well, one of the packaging companies deals with Harrods, deals with all these different brands. And somehow they saw my designs. They saw my, my vision on what I wanted for Soapsmith. And they got in touch with me. So Harrods got in touch with you? Yep, they got in touch with one of the people that was helping me. And then through them, they got in touch with me. How cool is that? It's great. But you... then it, it, it depends because I've gotten so many no's. I've got so and, many no's. And then selling to other businesses, is that mm. the hardest part of your job? Um, no. With, I got into, when I got into Harrods, from Harrods, I got Selfridges because the buyers go to other shops to see what the competition's selling, right? So Selfridges contacted me. And at this point, the moment you have a flagship stockist, when I contacted other shops, because you're in Harrods, they're like, oh, what have you got? So then from there, I got like Museum of London, they approached me, I got um, Urban Outfitters, I got various other, other companies you know, just by being in one. And then they put, Harrods, luckily for me, they put me in their um, their magazine that you get. And that, you know, that that came a lot of, um, a lot of inquiries. And, and people, it was just me. People <laughs> listening to this will just think, this is all fantastic, which it is. But, but just tell us, what's the hardest thing 
about doing what you've done? Um, there's been so many hard points. Um, yeah, hard, there's been so many hard bits. The first bit was, you may say it's great that I'm in Harrods, but when you went onto my website, even though I was in Harrods, I didn't have the resources to build, to get a website backend built out. It's not like it is now where you just um, go to Shopify or whatever. At the time, I didn't know any of this. I thought you had to have a fancy e-commerce site. So on my website, it was just literally a blank page, my logo, and said, sorry, busy making soap. That was it for like six months because I didn't have any, 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 any resources at all at that point because I was spending the money to make product, you know, it was just trying to tick it all over. A light bulb moment for Simon Doble led him on the path to help reduce energy poverty. Simon explains how his idea has helped transform the lives of refugees around the world. And then I read this article in Time magazine in, in October 2011, and, and it described this thing called energy poverty and how billions of people live in darkness. And in that headline, that 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 narrative just really grabbed me and, and I was in my own darkness and, and I read this article and, and it became obvious to me that my darkness was nothing compared to billions of other people around the world that that were in the most extreme form of darkness for, for no other reason and they had no no ability to to have electricity or or um, turn on a light or, or do anything as simple as, as what we take for granted every day and and that that was my pivotal moment to be perfectly honest with you I I I, that was my purpose. I was meant to read that article. Um, I was meant to sit on that couch on that day and pick up that magazine and read that article, and and, um, and it saved my life. So. That's a, a, a fantastic story to hear, and that that from uh, that sort of despair, you've gone on to do the most incredible thing, Simon. Do you want to tell the listeners how, from reading that article, you then went on to innovate and create um, the light source that you did, and how it's been used and solar budget so you, you're sitting there you've read an article it's chiming you you think to yourself i've got to do something so what do you do i was always like one of those frustrated um inventors you know that one of those guys that goes out into the into the shed or the garage and tinkers away and comes up with the next great idea or the next great and they never see the light of day and you know you you, you think you're on something but um and i think i was always like that because i was i was you know curious in my mind and probably always was an innovator. I just didn't hadn't found the, the purpose of what to innovate on, I guess. And this article in, in the conflicting sort of emotional trauma that I was going through and, and still to this day it exists, um, that gave me the fuel of the fire to, to sort of really, really grab hold of, of, of what I could do and use my, my innovative sort of abilities to try and solve something. And what I did, it, it basically energy poverty is, is a, is a is a issue that affects hundreds and hundreds of millions of people. And, and through my research, after reading this particular article, I, I discovered that um, not just in communities across Africa and India and elsewhere around the world, there was hundreds of millions of people, like I mentioned, but that also in refugee camps um, where, where people were escaping famine or, or civil war or, or, or other circumstances and, and were being protected, they were still there was still energy poverty. There was still um, the use of kerosene lanterns inside tents, inside refugee tents. And um, that made no sense to me. So I found myself um, purchasing a, a humanitarian tent from, from one of the suppliers. 
and I brought that over to Australia and I, and I lived in it um, because I wanted to immerse myself in, in what it potentially would be like to live in a tent that's para, you know, illuminated by kerosene and kerosene lanterns. And, um, and I ended up in Benny's solution that incorporated lighting and, and device charging solar panels into the fabric and the structure of that humanitarian tent. And, um, and then I took that to uh, Geneva to UNHCR and presented it to, to UNHCR. And um, that, was, that was the start of it. And, um, you know, that was, that was great. I sort of had my eureka moment and, and thought, okay, this is cool. And, and maybe they like it, maybe they won't. Um, but I was pretty convinced they would and they did. And, and then six short months later, we had pilots in, in um, a number of refugee camps in, I think six refugee camps from memory in, in two countries. Um, for in Chad for the the, the furry refugees and, and in Ethiopia slash Somalia for the Somali refugees and and um, and it was a success and and um, and it was wonderful to be involved in and to learn and to be on the ground and see the impact that, that we could have or I could have with, with, with one simple idea basically and um, and that was me coming out of my own darkness that was me turning the light on for for refugees and families that that were in the darkness in the dark before and 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 um, we've gone on to innovate and design and develop lots of solutions and and then wrap them around a, a fairly innovative model which we call solar buddy now and that's where we are personal experiences regularly inspire businesses and this is true of tina wilson whose experience of dating apps drove her to found wingman the free dating app that allows friends and family to become matchmakers for their single friend. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't use dating apps. You are one of those horrible people that's on a dating app. Like girls want to feel safe. And so for me, seeing that it was such a male dominated area in that 95% of dating sites have been created by men. Um, it gave me a bit of an insight thinking, well, you know, what? I'll just start doing a business plan. I never really looked ahead and thought I'm going to launch this app and I'm going to be the CEO of it and I'm going to that never occurred to me I kind of just felt like I'll give it a go as I did at KPMG if I don't like it I can leave after a week and so for me it was that tearing the band off band-aid off in saying to my clients in in London look I'm not going to be doing this anymore I'll finish off this job but I am heading back to New York to work on on wingman and all my friends were thinking i was absolutely bonkers they're just like you've got a really comfortable nice life here you've got a sweet job you've got this why would you go and and do it and i said you know what i've always been very risk averse i've always been quite nervous about stuff um but i just thought when you know you know like i just thought no i'm going to do it and i'm not going to live with a regret of not giving it a go. And I'm not gonna make all these promises to people and predict, tell everyone what I'm gonna do. My thing was just step by step. It was, I'm gonna do a business plan. I'm gonna meet with some developers. I'm going to see that. So for me, it was very, again, like managing a project, right? Getting your research, interacting with experts, finding out as much as I possibly could. But ultimately what it turned into was that it is mine and 
you know, I've raised a ton of money on it. I did, I did bootstrap it myself at first. Um, I never told really that many people what I was doing. So it wasn't that I was saying, I'm going to create a dating app and it's going to change the way people date. I was just saying, I've got a bit of an idea and going to see how that goes. Whereas in America, people are, and the UK as well, you know, there's this kind of Instagrammy culture where everybody's talking about how good they are and what they're going to do. And, and my, one of my mantras is always actions speak louder than words. Right. So I had nothing to prove to anybody else, but myself that I could kind of get a project like this done. Um, and so with that, there wasn't really much of a, Oh, what if I fail? Because everyone thought I was a bit mad anyway. And I was like, well, worst case scenario, I'll just go back to interior design. And then the more I got into it, the more kind of I became cemented and a bit more addicted to it. And now I'm like, yeah, here I am. The, a female entrepreneur in the tech world. The Turner Twins, Britain's very own adventurers, explain how they prepared for their trip, rowing 2,650 miles across the Atlantic. I think we, we gave ourselves um, a very difficult project um, financially, you know, physiologically, mentally, logistically, you know, everything was up against us. You know, you had four, four uni students that were in a bar trying to plan a trip that, you know, cost hundreds of thousands, you know, the pressure, you know, this was completely new concept to us. We hadn't, you know, stepped out of a, a corporate world for 10 years. This is us coming straight from a design degree at university. So this is a huge learning curve for us, but preparation, 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 you know, it's the six P's, isn't it? And, you know, we made us made life so much more um, easier on board because we had a very, very good setup um, in the build up to the project. Um, we crossed the I's, dotted the T's. We came up with, you know, we worked as a team. We all had our different areas. We looked at and broke down up, broke down the whole project and said, right, Greg, you're an expert in rowing, right, Adam, you're an expert in electronics, Ross, your, you know, navigation, Hugo, your boat setup, whatever it was, we all had our own tasks. And, you know, the amount of times yes. we, you know, mentally went through the entire row was, you know, yeah, we, we just went through everything meticulously. And, you know, even came down to the whole project you know, coming down to a broken oar lock. So this is the little kind of U shape on the end of the beam off the side of the boat that holds the oar in place. And one of those completely snapped off and we hadn't even planned for it. And, you know, the only thing that saved us is that somebody forgot to take out a tool that was meant to be left at the dock. And, you know, had it not have been for a bit of luck, you know, we wouldn't have got there. And, you know, there's so many times on that row that you look at everything and you think, Christ, you know, had we not prepared for that? And I think the biggest, the biggest thing is actually the mental preparation. Um, if someone said to me now, you know, go and row the, you've got to go and row the Atlantic tomorrow, I would be like, absolutely no way. And there were some, there were some, <laughs> there were some pretty low moments, um, some very low moments, but you know, we, we trusted our preparation and there was no, you know, I don't think either of us or any of the team, including Adam and Greg, who we did it with, um, got to the start line and we we're like, 
you know, we're not ready for this. I mean, we certainly didn't know we weren't ready, but, you know, in our minds, we had done the preparation and therefore we believed we could do it. And I think that mindset, you know, that your preparation helps with your mental readiness. So yeah, for me, it's, it's preparation. If you want to get happy at work, head to workall.co.